Jorge Santos, welcome to Professor Latinx. Great, thanks for having me, man. We're going to talk civil rights, graphic histories, your work, um, kind of research, teaching. You know, we're just going to have some fun here. Um, so, yeah, out of the gate, out of the gate, graphic memories. Tell us about that book and the research and why. Why do this? I mean, this is a radical shift from your dissertation. Right. Right. No, I didn't go to grad school for this. I don't think many people did. I mean, I did focus a lot on civil rights era authors in my dissertation. So it wasn't a huge leap away, but I was really mostly working on, you know, religious rhetoric and, you know, ethnic literature. Right. And comic books just sort of happened from the side. So there's sort of two ways to talk about the origins. Let's say you call it the origin story of this book. The first is just growing up Latino in inner city Houston, loving comics, right? I think like a lot of people, my father made, I think, the classic mistake of banning comics because they were trash literature. And that just makes them more exciting, right? So I had a bunch of Latino kids who grew up reading X-Men. And I actually talk about this in my epilogue. And they, they turned me on to X-Men. And at the time... You know, feeling like you were a spectator in society, like an outsider, you know, you're an immigrant kid, you're poor. Like, it's, and, you know, I had to go to like rinky dink church house schools. Like, like I looked up to the poor Catholic schools, like, wow, those are cool, you know, like that sort of thing. And then here come this group of mutants that have their own school, just like me. And they're also like feeling like outsiders, just like me. And it's just the love affair became. What I realize now is that that's also began my love of the civil rights movement because I just love the civil rights movement. I love studying it, talking about it, thinking about it. It just fascinates me uh, still to no end. And, and from there, so that was always just the sort of water table of my, con my intellectual consciousness, right? It's just always there. And, but the idea didn't strike me until much later. So in grad school, I actually, you know, it's funny that you brought it up. Uh, I read one of your books, uh, Your Brain on Latino Comics, right? Somebody handed that to me, like, because I always read comics, but I always read them like they were over here, right? Literature's over here. It's just kind of the way we've always been conditioned since, you know, forever, right? And it never occurred to me that people would write about comics or even to think about it. So when I saw it, I was like, is this a thing? People write about comics? And they're like, yeah, it's a newer thing. And I read it, and I was just like, First of all, I was so, like, jealous of a person I hadn't met yet. I was like, who did he get to say, like, I'm going to read all these awesome Latino comics and just tell everybody about them, and then boom. And I was just like, oh, man, what an amazing idea. Like, I was immediately, like, had that sort of epiphany of both jealousy and also that's going to be my career path. I'm going to somehow do this too, you know? And in it, I discovered Pablo's Inferno, right? And Pablo's Inferno... I wanted to include it in my dissertation because it, I thought I could, I could massage it in. And they were like, no, it doesn't fit the scope, but we like your work with it. These are my, my, uh, my mentors, who I think you've met, Kathy and Martha. I know you've met Martha. And they encouraged the project. Like, this is a really cool reading of this, and graphic novels are becoming a thing. This is now, what, 2000 and I want to say 2012 around this, 2011, around then. And they said, keep working on this. There's definitely, you know, a venues to publish this in but it's not going to fit your dissertation so i just kept working on it on my own you know mm -hmm. and then i i 
published that piece and I took it around the Mela circuit, right? Because that's my training is in Mela's multi-ethnic literature in the United States. And our mutual friend, Chris, saw both talks. I did a talk on that and I did a talk on Darkroom the next year. And he's like, you should write a book on comics. You probably have a head for them. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, like, I mean, you remember what it was like to be junior faculty, like telling somebody, hey, write a different book. Stop the one you're working on and write this other one instead. Is like, yeah, that's impossible. I can't possibly do that. And then, I don't know if you remember this, um, he actually said, you, you know Fred Aldama? I was like, yeah, I've read his work. He's like, you should talk to him. He'll talk you into it. And I was like, all right. And then you did. I don't know if you remember that phone call. And I was like, sure, Fred seems cool. I'll stake my whole career on his hunch. <laughs> and, uh, but then it turned out, it worked out. The, the book came together. So why research about comics? I guess I haven't really answered that question. Uh, for the civil rights movement, again, I sort of realized that the X-Men were fascinating me. Uh, with the civil rights idea because they're often understood as a civil rights allegory. And just as a historical moment in history, I, it's just such an interesting moment because I, I don't, except for maybe recently, I don't know of any other era where we're sort of openly talking about race across racial lines. Before that, it's just, you know, the hegemonic group talking about it amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Openly, perhaps, but it's one-sided. It's not a dialogue by any means, right? And then uh, John Green put it very uh, interestingly enough that we call this era the civil rights movement. It's kind of misnamed because the civil rights movement began when the first slave came to America trying to fight for freedom. Like it's been the civil rights movement this entire time. But we call that era the civil rights movement because activists started winning. Right. And I just got fascinated even as a young person by just the drama of the civil rights, the, 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 the student-led protests, the strategic nature of it. And what I came to learn eventually, and I sort of talk a bit about this in the book, is that comic books and the civil rights movement were sort of kind of always intertwined, right? John Lewis even says that a comic book is what inspired him to join the movement. This is John Lewis, you know, one of the most important people, right, of the civil rights movement. So, and at the end of the day, you know, this is going to be very almost a basic answer, maybe not satisfying, but I just admire the people of the civil rights movement so much. They're just my heroes, right? And I don't mean just the obvious figures like Malcolm X and MLK, although, you know, obviously I admire both of them, but like the forgotten people, right? Mm-hmm. The Bayard Rustins, right? The man who organized the, the March on Washington. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, who gave the most infamous uh, speech at the DNC of all time. Diane Nash, who was ready to just grab a bunch of people and march on Washington again right after the civil rights because she, she was such a fierce organizer and just fearless person. And you just, it just, you know, I, I always tell my students, try not to fall in love with the figures of the past because they're never who we remember. But this, I, I, this is one of those practice what I preach and not what I do moments because I have sort of just, I just have a sort of deep admiration that has become affection for the civil rights movement, right? And what I realized is that there are tons of comic books about the civil rights movement. So I was like, okay, there's got to be an energy here. Someone's got to write this. I don't want, I'm not going to let Fred scoop me on this one too, since you wrote like the book on Latino comics. Like, well, then I'm writing the book on the civil rights movement, right? Um, so, so then, so why comics though? That's the other thing, why comics? We're right about comics. Um, one thing is, and this is, I don't know if this is a fair answer. It comes naturally to me, actually. Like I can write about comics efficiently and quickly. 
And I think it's just because I've read them for so long, I've developed an intuition for the form. I never would have described myself as a formalist, but I've become one because I just have fallen in love with form, right? And I realized that the sort of implicit storytelling symbolisms and metaphors or commentaries and, and built into just the structure of a page jump out at me, right? So I just started working with it more and more. And the more and more I do it, the more and more fascinated I get by it. I think if you were to look at, my wife was actually picking on me yes, yesterday, actually. If you look at the stuff I've written about comics, all of it is pretty tethered to form in one way or another. Uh, and that's not a sort of like, like I'm not some sort of new critic, like insisting that everything has to be refracted to form. But at the same time, I'm really into it, right? Yeah, no, but, that's, that's cool, man. Yeah. Let me, let me just say something there. You've, that just kind of came to my mind. Yeah, it's um, for those of us who actually take pleasure in excavating and enriching our kind of understanding of how form works in art generally, literature, alphabetic, visual, etc. Comics is a way to kind of, it's like we can be out totally about it and do like civil rights sort of historical historiography right yeah yeah no it really it's and i think there's something about comics culture as well as even literary culture that really finds an outlet here right because comic culture ultimately loves to reward the esoteric and the minute right mm -hmm. and say something like nate powell who if you go just go back and look he's hiding these weird little easter eggs or commentaries just in little panels just all over the place like i never thought i would get so much out of just bleeds as i did and i could have kept going now that i go back to it i'm like oh i didn't talk about this page or that page or that page right. and it's it's just there's so much there to unpack and it rewards the sort of pleasure of un like you said is excavation right okay. and and just being able to sort of argue for a richer understanding of a text because of that process right it's very self-rewarding right because you fall in love with these literatures and it's fun to be able to know all their intricacies right and um i think though to go maybe past that a little bit uh, you know comics have such a fun visual language and in terms of talking about history or talking about identity and it just does things other things can't do mm -hmm. yeah so great i love uh that the nice segue to um one of my favorites um uh, hoche anderson uh well in this instance you're looking at king um yeah walk us through i mean like insane like visual narrator narrator oh, yeah. right so tell yeah. us like in your kind of graphic reclamation work like how does someone like you know anderson just kind of take us somewhere new and at the same time some somewhere so to someone that we know Right, right. No, and and both manages to like give us a new understanding of a familiar person through MLK, but also ending with very little understanding as part of his project. Um, and Hoche, I don't know if you've met him or talked with him. He's oh, yeah. you know he's a he's a great guy. He's fun character you know doesn't like to answer the same question the same way like he's just loves to jump around as he calls it this is his playground book and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar king is a retelling of the life of martin luther king but it's told through these visual mediums that are just 
every kind of art style you can think of. There's classic comic nine panel grids. There's uh, abstract painting. There is cubism. There is documentary style. There's collage. There's distorted photographs. And he, and if you ask him, he'll say like, ah, I just threw in whatever I felt that day. And in my head, cause I love King so much and it's such a puzzle. And I always, I, in my head, I'm always like, bullshit. I don't buy that. Like, I don't buy that. These are all random choices. Like there must be, and even if they are, as, uh, as Scott McLeod said, there's no such thing as a non sequitur, right? Even if you didn't intend anything, the reader has one as there's equal authority to find the meaning then, right? And so I just wanted to look at how he was using all these visuals to both defamiliarize a familiar story, right? Because MLK is like the king of the civil rights narrative, right? He's, a, he's the American Jesus, right? He died for our racial sins. And how do you make that person, uh, how do you make that person unfamiliar right and i think what he does brilliantly through visual media mostly is like this tell us like he's not actually familiar you've never known him like every version of king you know is refracted through some either historical uh, some in uh, some unreliable historical memory right like consensus memory or through media apparatuses or both simultaneously right all uh, actually his ultimate gift is to is to use art and this is what comics are great using art to make us see something about reality right yeah this is hard to follow you don't recognize this man and this version of his history is all unfamiliar and hard to decipher based on these visual codes and it's like yes this is how you should be reading him without the comic right and i just think that it manages to do that with a sort of and a sort of level of creative frenzy that is just is super close readable my students when they read king are are first hugely intimidated like what is this weird book that they can't even pick an art style right but by the end they are all just so fascinated by the realizations that and conclusions they come to about history itself struggling through this book and at the end of the day they end up all really appreciating having read it and some of them end up falling in love with it completely yeah i totally get it another one another one that's a big kind of passion to that we share jorge is uh dark room sort of uh lila quintero weaver's uh graphic memoir um gosh very different obviously um but yeah, walk us, walk us through this very different kind of way of shaping a coming of age during this significant moment of our sort of nation's history. So for, for your listeners that might be unfamiliar, Dark Room is, told from the, is a memoir. It's told from the point of view of an Argentinian immigrant woman as a young girl who moved to Selma at the time of the civil rights movement or just outside of Selma. She's actually in Marion. And first of all, what an introduction to the United States to show up in 1962 and the civil rights movement's happening. It's sort of, it talks about Bildungsroman. There's a, there's a huge moment of political awakening, just stepping off of the plane and seeing what's going on. Right. Um, so in many ways, the narrative, I think is the narrative itself is a little, I won't say straightforward. That sounds condescending, but it's familiar, right? It's, you know, it's a Latina, uh, trying to find her way in terms of identity in the United States, confused about the polarities between blackness and whiteness, you know, problems of language, problems of education. Uh, but what I think that does is, but I think that sort of turn is actually brilliant because at the same time, 
she's making, and this is a big thing I love about comics, is making the familiar unfamiliar, taking two familiar stories, right? The story of the immigrant uh, making their way through the United States and the story of the civil rights movement, but putting them together recontextualizes each in a way that refreshes both. Right. So just in terms of a narrative, I think it's great for that. It makes it. And I always this is always a big thing with me is it's super teachable for that reason. I have put it in so many different classrooms and it reads different in each one. Right. Uh, or, uh, or as the parlance of our time, it hits different each time. Right. But what I love about it in terms of the book itself is that visually um, I what I always say about comics is that when you talk about comics and history, it's easy to treat history as artifact right? As something you excavate, unearth, and just treat as a clear window into the past, right? Comic books are clearly artifice, right? They are art pieces, they're designed, they're produced, right? So when you tell um, history through the comic form, it not only creates this sort of, uh, this sort of uh, affective accuracy, I think what Hilary Shue calls it, um, but it reminds us of its own construction constantly. You never forget you're reading a comic when you're reading a comic, right? You're always aware of the construction of the narrative, both for the visual aesthetic, but also because, again, as we often love to say, comics are quote cooperative. We're co-authoring alongside the reader, well, besides the author. So we're always aware of the sort of narrative production process, even when we're reading history. It's hard to read a comic, I would argue, as received history. On the other hand, history is often read in that sort of passive mode, that sort of received, right? And I think the, the most important icon or emblem for that truth is the photograph, right? I always joke with my students, Pixar didn't happen, right? We all know that's how history works, right? But here we have in Darkroom this visual narrative that's instructing us to read how to read history as both artifice and artifact, that the comic book can be an artifact, that artifacts are also artifice in this way that sort of mutually feeds into each other through the act of reproducing photographs and in the, and the central metaphor of the book announced in the title of Darkroom, right? Of history and development, right? And it reminds us that all of history much like the photograph, hides its author, right? We don't see the author. We lose track of that. And because of that, it's easy to read it in the vacuum. And Darkroom's uh, visual language, and it's all its related metaphors, like the lesson where she's teaching you how to draw. And so before you can learn how to draw, you have to learn how to see, right? And there's so many metaphors for learning how to see. And the thing that we're most we're learning how to see that's the most important, I would argue, is the constructedness of narratives of history, right? And the way that, but that doesn't mean, and the, but it's not done in a sort of postmodern, like takedown, right? It's more like almost post postmodern, right? It's like it's the constructive. Like once we realize everything is constructed, we are now free to reconstruct in a way that best suits our purposes. Whether that purpose be an accurate reflection of history, a subjective understanding, or reckoning with history. But as long as that sort of subjectivity is always forward, we don't fall into the trap of treating things like objective truth claims. And the comic book, with all its capabilities for meta-aware reading, I just think is the most exciting vehicle for that. It's, it's, I mean, look at, go back to the one we just said. There's no way to get comfortable narratively in King, right? Because it's constantly disrupting you and forcing you to reconsider the constructiveness of what you're reading. And I think that Darkroom does that with much less bombast. It's certainly much more subtle. Uh, but I also think with some fairly 
some incredibly, how can I say this, uh, insightful, salient, and significant accomplishments in terms of being able to see that. I, in the book, I reached out to Susan Sontag, but in many ways, I think that this book almost surpasses what Sontag and Berger offered us in ways of seeing and in photography because of the capabilities. Again, I, this is something I always come back to of things that comics can do that no other medium can. Yeah, there's this um, way that photographs tend to become either souvenirs, mementos, or even a kind of fetishism of a nostalgia of the past. Right. You know, when we have something like Darkroom, and of course she's playing with all of this, even with the title, um, and the sort of drawn image or the drawing over of, of, of a photograph or the drawing of a photograph, um, there's a kind of a mechanism in place that d disallows that fetishism, right? Right, right. And I think that that act coming from a Latina immigrant gains additional meaningfulness when the act of redrawing a photograph, even a classic one that would be familiar to readers, allows a sort of authorship and of that moment, clearly just from the act of drawing it, but then taking possession of the nostalgia or history or the past that is proffered by that evidence for that photograph. And for a Latina immigrant to claim the history of civil rights and then, you know, as she said, insert a civil of gray, right? Um, as another, you know, as a fellow Latino, that's meaningful to me as someone who doesn't feel like a participant in American history, right? And then to claim it and author yourself into the narrative, I just think is a powerful move. And it's a, I, I, it makes me love the book. Yeah, likewise. Um, for graphic indigeneity, a kind of a whole new space that we're sort of collectively opening up. Um, you wrote this amazing, amazingly cool chapter on Daniel Parada's Zots. Tell me what, I don't know, some surprises there, things that you would like to share with those who are kind of not yet in this space of realizing the kind of great creative power of comics, written, you know, drawn imagery, storytelling within the Americas, specifically the indigenous Americas. I think that, well, in terms of surprises, right, something they might find surprising is perhaps just sort of showing, pulling back the curtain about how this stuff works. I wrote this article because you basically dared me to. Like, he's like, you could probably do this. You feel like, just feel like this is, with, you, you got this. And at this point, I was like, well, you come with me write a book. I guess an article is in such a stretch, right? So the first thing is like, all right, where do I start? So I'm trained in Mellis. So I have some, you know, in terms of theoretical approaches, I have ways into indigenous literature. Um, but I was looking like, where's my way in? And I started reading, you know, up on the field. And you gave me the great book. You gave me the great recommendation. Um, Oh, uh, parting, no, is it parting the Waters, Textual Continuums? I forget the name of the author, but shout out if you're listening because your book is great. And it has that notion. Uh, and, well, first of all, it goes back to the history. So the central tension, I guess we'll call it, in terms of indigenous literature generally is, at least that I discovered, and I, I, I say this with some, uh, with acknowledgement that I'm, I'm somewhat of a novice in the specificity of this field, although I have been part of related fields for some, quite some time, um, particularly through the Latinx field, right? That touches this quite a bit. 
And that is the tension between written codes and oral codes, right? So the first being that um, written codes and the, uh, uh, you know, but the, the tension between those codes reaches back to colonial experiences, right? Oral is associated with the savage, with the primitive, and then the written with modernity. So to write um, an indigenous literature can sometimes feel like a colonial act, but then how do you transmit orality? How do you then, you know, escape the trap of, figuring orality as as a form of primitive or inverting it right and just recreating the binary well now orality is the authentic and now the written is somehow inauthentic and that doesn't get us anywhere either so um the continuum that i was talking about tries to find ways to um reorient the way we look at written oral codes as a co-constitutive as reinforcing each other as not opposed right trying to uh, return us to an interpretation of those modes as syncretic as opposed to mm-hmm. opposed or oppositional. And the first thing I thought, and maybe this has become my go-to move, is like uh, visual codes, multiple codes, multiple registers of voice happening at once, forms of orality, that's a comic, right? And the more I read it, the more I started looking around, and the more I see um, that reality coming forward, and other people have noticed this too, there's actually now I've discovered a rich tradition of balancing the written and the oral, or if you prefer the visual and the spoken um, through the comic form, right? Because the tension between codes is exactly how comics function. So I thought like, well, maybe the comic might be a vehicle towards recreating that problem, right? Reaching a synthesis between the written and the oral that isn't treating them as oppositional. And I thought Zotz just did it magnificently, right? And many times it's inverting their values, right? Sometimes the oral is the one that attempts to say a, or a, a, a more, how can I say, a traditional form of communication and the written can be the sort of more modern, but sometimes that is inverted where the written becomes the primitive or the, or, well, I hate to use that word, but, or the oral becomes the more modern, right? Mm-hmm. So having them play each other's roles, but more importantly, having them be simultaneous authors in the creation of a literary product. In this case, a reimagining of Aztec history, having repulsed the, 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 the colonial Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. And, I do, and what I disc- and what I discovered is that there's a lot of potentiality there, and it's being actualized by certain authors. Now, to what extent that is a deliberate choice, I think in Zotz it is, uh, and to what extent it's simply just a obvious manifestation of what the graphic form can do. I don't even know that's an important question, right? It's it's happening. There's lots of energy there. And you see something happening that's incredibly unique and I think is finding a ways to file find its way out of the old traps of what prose alone can do. And when I say that, I don't mean to reject prose. Like I think a lot of people will sometimes think like, oh, do you even still read novels? Like, yes, yeah, quite a few of them. I love novels, right? This isn't about a creating a hierarchy of form so much as it's about taking advantage of the tools available to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris Tuton, Deep Waters, right? Yeah. That's, that's the one. That's, that's our, the one. So shout out, Chris. Shout out to Chris Tuton. I loved your book. It, it, it wrote my article for me. So um, teaching, of course, that's a big part of our lives, right? And how are you, how do you, you know, you're in a pretty fairly traditional um, English department, as, as right. many of us are. Um, how do you kind of bring that in? Are you doing courses just on comics? Do you bring comics into your, uh, you know, your liter- literature courses? Yeah, tell us about that. 
Uh, 100%. I actually started by introducing some comics into my literature courses. Part of that was for me, uh, splicing comics into paradigms of thought I was already comfortable in, right? And what I discovered is in those, in doing that is one, it super enriches your syllabi, right? Two, there is a hunger for graphic novels out there. And in some ways, because like, say, so I'll give you, I'll use an example of the one of the ones I did first that sort of changed the way I teach, just introducing this one book. And that is uh, Hernandez Brothers, specifically uh, the Palomar stories. Right. So one of the first times I taught Latinx literature, uh, uh, one of the criticisms I got in my CEFs, which were mostly positive, CF, my reviews, my evaluations was that like every narrative is like dour, right? Like every, it's easy to fall in love with historical trauma when you're talking about, you know, a, a course that's, that's built around an identity and the challenge is facing that identity. Right. Mm-hmm. And the Hernandez brothers let me change all that up because, as you know, the uh, La, uh, La Palomar stories are just wonderfully varied in tone and takeaway and representation, right? I think that that book in particular does a, it does, you know, it, through just a simple inversion of the typical gender hierarchies of the way we would imagine a uh, small Latinx community. And for those of you who don't know, it takes place in Palomar and imagine Central American a small town, uh, even a village, um, that's a matriarchy, right? Let's them opens up doors that are previously unexplored. So there is such a great exploration of like masculine vulnerability, authorized simply by removing the burden of rule from the from the male gender, right? It's such a it's such a problematic trope of of, of our communities and of our literature, right? So many uh, different great authors from Juno Diaz and Perry Thomas have explored the trappings of masculinity. And, but instead of lamenting it, Hernandez opens it up through the traditions of the comic to imagine other ways of doing it. And instead of lamenting the inability to discuss, you know, the vulnerabilities or the frailties of masculinity, he just does it. <laughs> he just doesn't, doesn't stay there, right? And to me, there's something about comics, particularly with an X, that permits that, right? The whole premise of the comics of the next alternative, uh, alternative genre is to do what usually isn't being done, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of topics and in terms of approach to identity, it completely varies what, can be, what happens, right? Because comics exist on these literary margins and what happens, they met other people that were on the margins there and together they produced amazing pieces of art and perspective. Uh, so in that sense, that made me start doing that in all my classes. Like what things or opinions or thoughts are being said in comics, if for no other reason for its sort of marginal traditions that simply isn't happening elsewhere. And once you do that, you start realizing the visual modes also letting it to say it in ways that nothing else can, right? And students are just now, have become enamored of these so quickly that eventually just the demand came to teach comics only courses. And I have taught now quite a number. And um, they are always you know, there's a line out the door. There's always yeah. a waiting list, right? And what they discover is, and I tell them, and sometimes, you know, let's uh, let's be real here. There's a few people there who think, oh, comics, this can't be hard, you know? And yeah. I tell them the first day, you're going to be disappointed. I know two of you are here because you think this can't be hard and you're going to be disappointed because it's going to be hard, right? And of course it is. 
for some, that becomes an incredible moment of growth. They are fascinated by its difficulty. In fact, some, I, think, I think sometimes you get the opposite bias where students aren't taking that class because it won't be hard, right? Mm-hmm. They think they need to read Faulkner to have a real big, you know, a deep, profound narrative experience. But, and you can, but that's not the only way to do it, right? And because of that, um, now like the question even why does comics matter almost doesn't matter it's only because like well first of all i can do all these things but second of all people want to learn about it mm-hmm. and i and like i sort of talked about with the book i think it offers a sort of it fosters a metacritical approach to art that is unique to it now not exclusive by any means but certainly unique to it and in terms of teaching comics like every almost everything i've published was test run in my classrooms, right? Um, and I think comics, because the comic itself is already, there's this expectation of co-authorship that I think meaning that's such easily extended to the classroom where now the classroom is co-authoring meaning, right? So it also helps level the field. I find there's much less top-down me telling you what this means with a comic book. And one of the reasons is the sort of nature of the comic itself, but also because the comics field is so new, right? I tell them like, nobody talks, you are the first generation, you are going to get to decide what students after you are told about these comics, right? And I think that at least in this moment, the the buy-in just shoots up, right? When you tell them, like when you sell them on the brilliance of Vietnam America, right? And then point out to them, there's like three articles on this, right? they're immediately like, oh, I can say something genuinely new about this, right? Because it's been ignored. Um, as opposed to being the thousandth person to write about, I don't know. I'm going to say Virginia Woolf, but it sounds like I'm slamming Virginia Woolf. I love Virginia Woolf. I don't know why I did that. Just put but, there. That's fine. Yeah. We'll put Shakespeare there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking, Jorge, is... Um, you know, one thing that I love to do in my courses, um, and, you know, I almost exclusively teach comics now, um, but um, is, gosh, you know, like, the creators, especially the Latinx creators, are like living, breathing kind of archives of like knowledge and art know-how and storytelling kind of wisdom. And it's like, Skype them in. Yeah, yes. Talk to the creator, you know, let's do this, right? Well, that's, first of all, I think that's generally what I love about teaching post, everything post 1970s, you can do that, right? Like these people are, are alive and you can reach out to them. When they find out that John Lewis is still with us, you're like, what? What? You know, he's still around? Like they get so excited because they assume that, oh, we're reading their book. They must be dead, you know? And actually, um, in fact, since we're talking about this, Pablo's, we'll go back to Pablo's Inferno. Uh, Rodi actually um, talked to my class. He actually, what he did, instead of talking to them directly, is he took all their questions and just edited a nice video mm. with like, pictures for them, answering their questions, and I shared it in class. And that blew them away because it was so immediate and, per- and customized. And you know, So shouts to Rodi for doing that. Rodi actually, he um, sold me personal copies of Pablo's Inferno so I could finally teach it. I, I only got to teach it once. Um, but he, we had to PayPal him, like, you know, basically the money for shipping. Those are like gold. You do know that, right? 
Yeah, no, I have my two sets and my students all have theirs. They probably don't appreciate what they have, especially because I probably email him once a year, bugging him like, hey, when's this going to come out? When are you going to finally colorize this? When are you do? When, 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 when? And, yeah. and uh, he always is like, soon, man, soon. And then he doesn't because he has a productive literary career and he's not going back to his fun indie project that a thousand people are obsessed with. But I'm not going <laughs> to quit bugging him until he does it. Yeah. Me too. I'll be, I'm there with you bugging him. I think it might be either um, with my Latino graphic series or um, um, I think Abrams is like going to, you know, jam it for him. So, and they'll do all the, they'll bring in all the colorists to, to do that work for him. But um, you've kind of already shared some of your methods. Um, um, is there, I mean, some, what is the Jorge Santos trademark? <laughs> no teaching you know you know thing that you do what's your thing what's my thing oh man what a, so well that's a good question i gotta think about it that way what's my hook honestly like you know what i find people really like is act is this is gonna sound almost simple like there's no hook is a sort of an affect it's just be in, in enthusiasm like students respond to enthusiasm. If you authorize them, especially with comics, right? If you authorize them to geek out, they're going to geek out, right? Um, so my, my go-to though, I guess in classroom practice is like um, this, the story of a single page is what I call it, right? Uh, as uh, Spiegelman has said, very, I think most famously, he's not alone in this obviously, but that the single unit of meaning in the comic is actually the page, right? So the thing we'll do most is just sit down and break down a page. And at first they're like, we're just going to talk about this one page. I'm like, watch, watch, let's break this page down. Let's see how much we get out of it. And by the end, we've talked about three pages, Mm -hmm. right? Out of the 75 page section, I had them read mining it for theme and for meaning. Um, You know, so my go-to is talk about this page and this page only. You're not to reference any other page, just this page. What is the story of this page, right? And how is it being told? And when you get them to focus that way, what they realize, like, oh, I've essentially taught you how to close read, right? Like this old nugget, right? But it works, right? This sort of detail work. And so so the combined, like, like, and I'll tell them, we don't have to say something intellectual about this. Like, we can just admire it. Of course, in my head, I'm like, I got to do that work. I got to get this to a, a takeaway that builds out to something other that isn't this neat, right? But we can start there. Um, in terms of pop culture, in particular, what's fun about, say, something like the X-Men, right? And I just did a unit on the X-Men in my civil rights and visual memory course, right? Is that, say, a concept like consensus memory, the idea that we all tacitly know what happened in the past, right? And we all have this sort of baseline elementary school narrative of it that's repeated ad nauseum in every arena of culture, right? Say, the, like, the life of Malcolm MLK for one example um with comics and i'm borrowing a little bit from wami fawaz's book new mutants here at least this ethos uh, not, not necessarily the argument although i do like that book is that with comics particularly serialized comics it's almost like you can see consensus memory forming in real time 
right? Like in a time-lapse way. Like it's, there's such neat time capsules, especially the Marvel comics as you see Stan Lee actually responding to readers and be like, oh, you like that? Well, let's give you some more of that. Or I didn't intend it this way. Um, and openly discussing what comics should be doing and accomplishing, right? And pop culture becomes this sort of repository of cultural memory. And when you look at it that way, that gives it the nice bird's eye view, almost like authorizing the project. But then when you get in there, what you realize is like, there is some profundity in these cultural narratives, right? In these things that we think of because pop culture, ultimately we always think of it as disposable, right? It's ethereal, it's in the moment, right? Uh, but like anything else, it's just a genre and a form and an audience. And when you have those three elements, you can make anything, right? You can do the ethereal, poppy, you know, not expected to last literature and create something permanent on accident. You can also realize there's a space here to create something special, do that as your motivating ethos and say something important that's not just interesting from a sociological perspective, but powerful from a narrative one as well, from a, like, like I said, like from a place of form, right? And take for, and, and in doing so, you could see, like for example, today actually, I taught in my immigrant narratives course, I taught Superman Birthright, the, the Wade and You reboot from 2003 that tries to recapture this political Superman right? The one that's commenting and actively participating in justice, not just, you know, stopping bank robberies, right? And you, there's two ways to think of that. First of all, there's the sort of sociological aspect of where are we in 2003 that we need to bring back Superman and refashion for a modern age? And how is that shaped by the politics of its moment, right? Um, like the infamous 1986 version that rewrote Superman as having been quote unquote born in the United States. So he's no longer an undocumented immigrant, right? How does 2003 respond to that? So there's a sort of sociological level too, right? But that class is invested in teaching the immigrant narrative as a genre with full with its own tropes, with its own devices, with its own thematics, with its own priorities, with its own narrative structures. And what they see is that Superman birthright is an excellent manifestation of the immigrant form, not just commenting on a sociological moment, right? And that's something pop culture does in a way that only pop culture does, right? Because of that sort of ethereal, it doesn't have to be connected with saying something universal, right? The way sometimes the creature of great art is it reaches to the universal, but sometimes you reach the universal through the specific, right? And I think that what they realize is that this, Ultimately, pop culture story that came out over, you know, one issue at a time over a course of, I believe, 12 months um, has some as a sort of narrative manifestation of a literary tradition is fantastic. Right. Particularly in the way it's subverting the it's subverting a form. It doesn't even announce the word immigrant doesn't appear at all in the in the comic. But we all know what is being said, right? Particularly you're familiar with the immigrant literary tradition it's reaching out to, but it's also saying something interesting about history, both in revealing itself as an artifact from 2003, but one that's answering to a previous artifact in 1986. And that's, I think, something that pop culture does particularly well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, ne next time I'm um, in the neighborhood or you do an online course, uh, I'm signing up. <laughs> Uh, well, you're welcome to Skype in next week when we t I talk about Logan as an undocumented immigrant drama. Ooh, wow. Okay, that sounds good. I'm there. Um, all right. So, yeah. Um, what are so? What's next for you, Jorge? And you know how? You know. You know. Yeah. What's next? And these series of images here. What? What? Are, what what's going on here with you and your kind of 
your worldview and your spirit? Oh, those are all huge questions. Uh, like everybody right now in their spirit, I'm just trying to do my part to make sure that, you know, um, everybody can be well, right? So my spirit right now is vacillating between stir craziness and this sort of almost like uh, unearned, like uh, uh, this unearned admiration in myself for the sacrifices I'm willing to make by just staying home and reading comics, right? Um, but it has offered, offered me opportunity to start working on my next projects, right? So in terms of stuff coming out now, I got a really cool article coming out now with a collection from Rutgers. I forget what it's called. Uh, I should have looked that up. I think it's called Mixed Race Superheroes. <laughs> Looking at um, how is Afro-Latinidad represented and understood in Miles Morales' comics. And Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. I'm glad you got that project. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It was super fun to write. Like I, I, uh, I had a fun moment reading it and uh, because, you know, as you knew, as you wrote in Latinx superheroes, we don't always have a ton of options when you're Latino and choosing superheroes, right? As sort of to identify with. Not that you'd have none, but um, I think the magic of a Latino, Af even Afro-Latino, I'm not Afro-Latino, I don't identify as Afro-Latino, but still Latino nonetheless, an Afro-Latino Spider-Man by the end of reading all these Miles comics, which I was ostensibly doing for research, I was just like, um, I was just like, holy crap. Like, I have identified so hard with this character and I, was, and I realized like, oh man, this is how most people feel all the time, right? Just like completely invested because I've somehow projected into that character. So that was a really fun project just to work on. Um, my next few things I'm working on, I'm working on a piece uh, for On the Block thinking about about on the block the film the show on netflix i am starting to think about other visual forms since uh you know i did write that logan piece obviously you know that and um, i'm beginning to get more and more in that world so I, the way on the block sees imagines and dramatizes um what you could call class conflicts i'm still working out exactly the nuances here but between african-american communities and more traditional latinx communities because i do i i don't I can't remember seeing that drama played out really in any other show or comic book that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, so that sort of tension between those two communities as depicted by on the block, that's what I'm thinking about. I'll put mm -hmm. it that way. And I'm also working on a piece taking uh, Juno Diaz uh, claim that he learned to write reading Gilbert Hernandez seriously. So what narrative strategies can we glean from the Palamat stories and, and from the, um, and from the, uh, the, the Locas, how can we glean that in terms of how Oscar Wilde was written? Mm -hmm. In particular, I want to argue or interpret that the use of, and this is patent pending or trademark, if anybody's listening, this is my, don't scoop me, that the footnotes and the main narrative in Juno Diaz function as symbolic panels and the space in between are gutters. So how do we read that through na graphic narrative devices? If that is in fact true, these sort of ideas of like juxtaposition and closure and the readers then left with the responsibility of 
joining these two competing registers of information into one whole, right? And specifically through the idea of the pagina en blanco, which you may remember from that book is an important motif. So that's just something I'm working on. I don't know if it's going to work. I may come back in three months and be like, no, that was a bullshit idea, my bad. But for now, that's what I'm thinking about. And then ultimately, I'm going to work on a follow-up to graphic memories called Visualizing Vietnam. And I wanted to be a little bit more ambitious. I actually want to go back and see what comics were saying about Vietnam during Vietnam and what comics today say about Vietnam in terms of how to remember it and what the visual strategies are for those narratives. And I'm really excited about that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I love it. I love uh, you unzipping your brain there and projecting us into the future of the Santos research and writing space. Um, So, yeah. we kind of talked about this, but just pick off the top of your, you know, maybe off the top of what comic book are you reading now? And like, oh, man. why is it so like crazy cool or yeah. Well, I mean, we've already been here for like an hour. You got a second hour because this is, gonna, <laughs> this is a big answer. Uh, okay. So I'll try to go rapid fire. I'll try to go like the best things I've read recently is rapid fire. So uh, I love monstrous by Marjorie Liu. So damn cool. So such a great, we- talk about something a comic can do such a great wed of fantasy anime and actual colonial history like it's in, in, a, in ways that aren't just jumping from one foot to the next but synthesizing it to its own thing like you may not recognize any of those three elements right the history of like uh like because there's so many anime tropes present in it right down to the protagonist with a monster trapped inside her that she doesn't understand right there are uh so many shout outs to the east west divide right in colonial history and orientalism and of and then of course there's this whole just sort of fantasy epic level right with these old like this this very um uh oh what is it uh uh the cthulhu guy oh come on Help me out. The, uh, the horror writer that every, has influenced everyone. Lovecraft. So that there's Lovecraftian level on top and that something with such disparate influences could come together and work so perfectly. It just feels like that's what comics do, right? Is this, this, blender, this blender of culture, right? Uh, I'm also reading Kill Six Billion Demons, um, which is just the craziest comic book. I, I don't even know how to tell you about the narrative. It's a standard portal fantasy. Young girl discovers she has magic powers and is transported to a crazy world of colorful creatures that she has to survive. But it's it's got it's inflected by so much um, Indian mythology as well as anime tropes that it's just the funnest, strangest thing. I can't even describe it really. So those two things for sure. Uh, I am in love with the current Miles Morales comics. I don't know if you've been following them since oh, yeah. uh, Saladin started writing them. Oh, yeah. Um, he, for those of you who don't know, his big villain are now human child traffickers that are taking yeah. advantage of the undocumented. And it's an amazing narrative, for, not just for these times, but to see Spider-Man fighting for the undocumented is just, to me, being Saladinian, it's just incredible incredible right this is incredible yeah. uh well, let me take a look at myself uh, this is not a comic book but the talented ripkins i just started that uh which is using superhero tropes to retell civil rights history so two of my jams right there and it's almost a cliche that i would like that book uh and i just cracked open michael chabon's cavalier and clay which uh, is of course yeah. narrativizing you know all the, the the 30s comic book industry mm-hmm. um those are the ones at the top of my head oh wait and of course the new x-men comics House of X, Powers of X, um, 
Jonathan Hickman should just be given the keys to the whole Marvel kingdom because he's just, everything he does is so cool. Awesome. Well, Jorge Santos, thank you for joining Professor Latinx and this video cast and opening your brain and your wisdom and your expertise, your attention, your sensitivity to comics and pop culture and the way we can bring that into our classrooms, our research and our life. Thank you. Hey, hey, Glado uh, Pues, and I wouldn't be here without uh, your sort of mentorship and gentle bullying. So I, uh, I, I thank you as well.